Welcome to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Over the next hour, Deborah, Tracy, and their guests will help you understand therapist burnout and how to feel better now. Listen close to bring vitality back to your practice. Now, here are Deborah and Tracy. Welcome to Reconceive. I'm Deborah. And I'm Tracy. And today we're talking about doing co therapy. Yeah, doing therapy in a whole new way. So this is episode 13, and I I think it falls on a very auspicious occasion, which is... Election Day? The full moon. Oh, that too. The full moon. And we just, we didn't get to see it because it was too cloudy here, but there was a a total lunar eclipse. Yeah. Since we do this show early in the morning, I got up at 4.30. I know Deborah was up at 4.30 trying to see the total yeah. lunar eclipse, but but not seeing anything except clouds. Too cloudy. I think I felt it, though. Did you feel it? Yes. Oh, and there was sort of a red glow. Yes. Up in the northwest. Yeah. It was beautiful outside. Yeah. Even though we couldn't see the full moon. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to start this show off by thanking Voice America for... Yeah making our experience doing this radio show podcast so easy and pleasant. Yes. Thank you. That, that I'm glad you said that because here at episode 13, we are, we're finishing out this series. Um, We're going to take a a brief hiatus for the rest of this year, this calendar year. And we'll be back in January of 2023 with more reconceived therapy. Um, but this has been wonderful. The last 13 weeks have been a, a joyous learning experience for both of us. Yes. And we were we were talking before this show about how in the beginning, the first two or three episodes, we were pretty nervous. And mm-hmm. those nerves have calmed down as, as we've gone through this series. Yes, they have. Yeah. It's lovely. And so today we're going to really talk about um, putting it all together, reconceived therapy. What is reconceived therapy? Last time, um, or I guess episode before last, when we were talking about going rogue, we were talking about breaking rules, doing things in a totally non-traditional way, Um, you know, not being so lonely in our work bringing more interdisciplinary collaboration into it. And today we're going to take that several steps further and talk about how we plan to work and how we're starting to work right now. Yes. And when we come back in January, we'll give you details about how it's going. Yeah. And if it's going well, we're thinking about writing a book and figuring out a way to teach other therapists how they can do co-therapy and you know, in the introduction, it talks about therapist burnout and bringing vitality back to your practice. Mm-hmm. It took us, you know, the first 10 episodes to really figure out a strategy and a plan to be able to do that. Yeah. But w- we both believe that we've found it. Yeah, I believe so. So we're going to talk today about the process 
of doing this reconceived model of therapy and then some content after the break, the content, the, the nuts and bolts of it. So um, before we get started with our topic for today, I wanted to tell a story about myself as a young therapist. I was um, in graduate school. I was in Dallas and I was working in a practice, in a private practice that was um, led by two senior psychologists, one of whom was my official supervisor with the state. And uh, I, she asked me, I'm going to call her Marcia, not her real name. Um, I think she's probably still practicing. But she asked me to join her as a co-therapist in a group. And this was a just a, a regular process group for adults that she had been leading for a couple of years already. So she had a very established relationship with each of the people in the group, each of the clients. And I think that each of the clients were her individual clients as well. So she had a long standing connection to them. And she brought me in as her co-therapist. And so I remember being really uncomfortable. Um, I tried to push through that because it was my job to be alert and to be listening and contributing. Um, one thing that has frequently happened to me in, in my life is that I'll be in a situation where I can't come up with words and people will say, you're too quiet. <laughs> so that was indeed what happened. I could not come up with anything to add. And I wondered what was wrong with me. Why am I so nervous in this group setting, in this room? And, um, you know, why am I not able to add anything to the experience? So it's taken me, let's see, 30 years, 30 years to realize what that was about. And now looking back, here's what I think it was. So <clears throat> in the room with Marsha, she was in control, first of all. She had power over me because she was my supervisor. So if she didn't like my work, um, that was a you know something that I could be directly criticized for. We weren't equals. Um, not only that, she had been sort of dissatisfied with my marketing efforts and my ability to generate a private practice. Um, and I, I had, you know, struggled with that. I was just brand new, I'm brand new and, and working at the master's level. So that was part of it. The other part of it was the way she ran the group, which was like a bunch of little individual therapy sessions. She would go around the circle and she would talk to each group member and they, they would be telling how they'd been doing for the last week. And she would have something to say to them that was very behavioral, very cut and dry. Well, here's what I hear you saying. And I think that you need to remember that you're working on this and you're working toward this. And so what would be a better way to look at this? She was very cognitive, very behavioral. And I don't think like that. Uh, I, I can if pressed, but it didn't play to my strengths at all. And that was an established way for that group to function. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, your description of it makes sense. But why have a group if you're not going to function as a group? That's a very good question. That's a very, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think, I think the point of being in a group 
therapy session is to create a relationship among the people in the group as opposed to doing many, you know, individual sessions. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense to me. You know what? You're reminding me that that is probably the key element that sort of paralyzed me and muted me in the room with her because it wasn't a relational experience. There were a bunch of little dyads that weren't all that relational. So as part of our new co-therapy practice, we are forming a group. Yes. But the goal, in my mind at least, is to be very relational. I think it has to be. Right. Otherwise, what? Uh, we we just are going to lecture each person in their turn. Hey, that sounds should, great. You should <laughs> I'm be. sure they'll love it. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, right. These people were really devoted to that group. Right. Um, I bet our group has more fun and <laughs> makes more friends and is more yeah. playful and joyful and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Because I think our goal will be to empower them to sort of take over. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm reminded of, uh, and I have to give credit to Anat Banyel. I am studying her method. Mm-hmm. And in her training, she talks a lot about how she wants to promote the idea of group thinking. And that's not mob mentality. That's mm-hmm. going back to when you were a kid and you would throw out all of these fun and crazy ideas of what to do during recess. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it was non judgmental and you'd finally land on something fun to do. But I think it's important in a group setting to get back to that freedom, that kind of non judgmental way of relating to others. Yeah, exactly. That would be so cool. So we're going to have to do things differently. And in order to do that, Tracy and I will have to work on our process. So this is where we start to dig into the meat of the matter. There are two basic areas that we're going to have to cover as we are moving into reconceived therapy. And like I said before, one is the process and the other is the content. And it's really easy to get focused on the content of what you're trying to do, the interventions you're trying to use, the science behind them, but neglect the process. And what do we mean by the process? The process, I mean, you and I are very content-driven in a way. We love to read about research and new ideas and but in most things, the process is really where the learning occurs. Ooh. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're content-driven, a lot of times you could be just goal-oriented. Yeah. But w- we want to have flexible goals. Right. Once again, going back to Anat Banyel's work. So we're not sure where this will go ultimately. Right. We can't plan it totally. We can't. Because we want to let it evolve 
in an organic way. Yeah. Okay. So there's been a lot written in the literature about doing co-therapy, but if you do a Google search, if you do a Google scholarship search, or you just search for co-therapy, how to do it, you'll find some things. Um, but what we've noticed is it's limited. It's very limited. Um, we find a lot of things on interdisciplinary co-therapy in hospital settings where people are writing about how physicians and nurses and techs and, you know, everybody involved can sort of work together. Um, how a music therapist can work as a part of a rehabilitation team where you're not necessarily in the same room with your colleagues, but there's not as much recent material being written on doing co-therapy where you are in the same room with the other therapists and you're working together side by side in tandem in real time. And on an equal standing. Ooh, yes. Because if there's a doctor and a nurse in the room, the doctor is running the show. Yes. But with what we're attempting to do, we are on an equal standing uh-huh. as co-therapist. Right. Exactly. So thus the process. That dumps us right into the process of doing this. So there are a number of advantages. If you if you do a liter- literature search, and we gave you a couple of references in the show notes, but um, for instance, a 2019 article that I found um, written by, uh, let's see, I can't read their, I can't read their names. It's too small. (laughs) Where did my reading lessons Uh go? Um, Co-therapy, let's see, Roller and Nelson have written about co-therapy, Kosh and Reiner, Hoffman and Laub, but there are some advantages to doing co-therapy. One is that it, it makes us more creative Two, the therapists complement each other with their knowledge, skills, and personalities. So we can we can be equals because we each are bringing something unique to the picture. Um, the therapy process is improved and shortened. And this is what you've been saying all along, that you think that the results will be more robust and we'll be able to see them more quickly. I do. And people who need help would prefer that it would happen quickly, right? I know I would. When I, I would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to feel better now. Um, the therapy, okay, so also we can give each other mutual support and supervision. Um, and the responsibilities and decision-making are shared, so we're not the Lone Ranger. And we can outsource covert conflicts and ambivalence. In other words, we don't have to keep so much secret, the secret shame and the secret vulnerabilities of being a lone therapist. Yes, which is a big deal. I think we'll talk more about that um, here in a minute. So I want to go back to co-therapy expands creativity. So we've talked a lot through this series about polyvagal theory. So when you're in a 
a state of defense, creativity, thinking, learning are greatly diminished. Mm -hmm. So when I think about co-therapy expanding creativity, the first thing that comes to mind is Deborah and I can hold space for one another. Mm -hmm. The goal is for us to always be in social engagement during a session. And that alone allows for tremendous creativity. It does. It makes us funnier people. Makes us funnier people. And then on top of that, if you go back to this idea of you got your chocolate in my peanut butter, Mm -hmm. you know, what she does in her practice is very different from what I do in my practice. Uh So the combining of those modalities and approaches expands our creativity as well. We are greater than the sum of our parts. Yes. Yeah. And that's exciting, I think. I think so, too. There's something that offers um, courage. I feel braver to take certain kinds of risks if I'm not the only one in the room. Yes, I think I will, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we've practiced some, mm-hmm. so I'm already feeling that, you know, this more willingness to move. Mm-hmm. And that's what I look for in my practice after I do a correction. I watch the client move before, I watch the client move after, and I'm looking for their willingness to move. And I feel that when we're doing code therapy, I have greater willingness to move beyond what I've done in the past. Oh, nice. Me too. So the process. Um, here, here's a list of guidelines that we put together for finding and nurturing a good co-therapy relationship. Um, so as I mentioned, these, these are about the process side of doing good co-therapy versus the content side, which we'll get to. But a good co-therapy relationship is only sustainable with nurturing regular care and attention, just like your houseplants. Can't neglect them. You can't leave them in a window box and and just go about your business. So (laughs) number one, look for someone who is trained slightly differently from you, but who holds similar ethical principles like the protection of client rights. So when you think about who you might want to do this work with, Look for someone that you like, someone that you already work with, whose work you admire, um, somebody you know you can learn from, um, and someone whose ethics you really trust. That seems really key, that last part. Yes. And I think, you know, if you feel isolated in the work you're doing, go out and experience what as a client, what other therapists are doing. Mm-hmm. And Deborah and I do that. She's been experiencing Reiki and mm-hmm. I love craniosacral therapy. I love massage. You know, I, I love shamanic work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, expand your, a good way to do that. If you're looking for somebody to do co-therapy with, 
go out and experience their work. Yeah, that's a really good idea. So then number two, um, practice working together. So in the very beginning, just think about how you could refer someone who would benefit from your friend's work and then see about can you do a joint session? Is that possible? Um, and I know that there there might be financial constraints to that. And we understand that's something that we're working through as we speak, trying to figure out, you know, do do we charge, do both of us charge for this session? Um, sometimes that will really work well, but it might not always be um, available for the client to, to pay for both of you. But begin thinking about how you can actually have a session that is a joint session where you put the skills together, you watch each other work. And remember that if this works the way we believe it will, you know, we may be cutting their therapy time in half. That's true. Which I would rather be out climbing, climbing trees than, you know, going to therapy trying to feel better. <laughs> so if my my therapy session time could be cut in half, I would be willing to pay. Me too. Double. Me too. Yeah. Up front. Up because front. the time is so valuable. Yes. It's our lives we're talking about. Yes. So explain to your clients what you're doing and why. Um, and you may want to ask for guinea pigs. And we've mentioned recruiting a couple of guinea pigs from our close circles. Um, volunteers who don't mind being in the room with both of us and letting us work on them for a bit. Um, and explain to them what you're doing and why. We want to put this thing together and we need practice doing so. So then the next um, guideline is, as you work, notice the process that unfolds. Have we noticed that there's a process for us yet that's unfolding? Well, every, every practice session we've done gets us a little bit closer to a clearer design. Mm -hmm. You know, some things we have realized and a catchphrase that I like for our practice is your session begins before you arrive. Oh, yeah. So we know that we want to be together a half an hour before the session begins. So I can figure out if Deborah needs anything, Deborah can figure out if I need anything, we can figure out if we need to do something like mirroring exercises before the, mm -hmm. the client comes in. We know what the client is coming in for, so we can review past experiences with similar clients. Mm -hmm. So we can actually be working on the client's behalf before they arrive. That's true. And then at the tail end, once the session is over, we want to go through what just happened because the goal is for us to learn how to be better and better at this. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that your session begins before you arrive because in a way, our process of doing co-therapy is that setting of the stage and seeing how each of us is feeling, seeing if there's anything we need to do to, to reconnect. And you mentioned mirroring exercises. This is something that was kind of new to me 13 weeks ago, but you brought mirroring exercises for us to do before those first couple of 
episodes. And basically you're, you're miming, you're, you're, you're pretending you're looking in a mirror at the other person. And as you move, they move with you. And then you switch to being the follower and let your, your partner move and you follow them like you're in a mirror. Am I saying that? Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you move slowly so the person mirroring can stay with you. It's it's not an attempt to trick the person in the mirror, mm-hmm. so to speak. It's a it's an opportunity to form a stronger connection. Yeah. And I think it worked beautifully. It it helps our nervous systems attune to each other. Yes. So the goal always is for us to be in social engagement before the client comes in. Uh So if we meet a half an hour before the client is supposed to be there, we can do all sorts of things to make sure we're in a biobehavioral state of health, growth, and restoration. Kind of like when you dance with your dance partner, you do exercises sort of similar to get into um, the the biobehavioral states of social engagement so that you can work together on the dance floor. Right. Because that state of being allows for creativity and joy and enthusiasm, Mm -hmm. all of the great things in life. Right. So then talk about your relationship. This is a big one. And I think... Tracy and I are probably just beginning to learn how to do this. Um, we've made some, you know, recent discoveries about um, who we are singly as therapists and then putting that together and how it feels and how we affect each other. So this is kind of a, a big deal and it's it's nebulous at first. It's hard to put words on. Um, but But part of what we want to find out about each other is what is your attachment style? What is my attachment style? How do those things work together? And that's tricky. It's tricky, but it's so important. And it's such an opportunity to learn more about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So as we do this, we are actually building a clearer self-image. A clearer self-image. I know myself better and better as I get to know you. Right. Yeah. That's uh, that's what I imagine is happening and will continue to happen as we explore this. Right. I think you're right. So what we find out is how we regulate closeness and distance between each other, both in session and out of session. And that's pretty important because every relationship, every two people who work together or play together um, have some dance that they do to regulate closeness and distance. And it's really important for us to know what that is so that we understand what's happening when we feel our co-therapist taking steps back, taking steps forward. Um, That's going to be important for us as we co-regulate in session. It's going to be such a great learning experience. And when you describe it, it just 
I know that it's going to be therapeutic for the therapists as well as the client. I love what you said earlier about the the client getting better might be ancillary to our own getting better. (laughs) Never mind about you. (laughs) Right. Let's all get better together. (laughs) We're better. (laughs) And that is great. So, okay. In a moment, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to deal with the content side of reconceived therapy. So we'll be back in a few minutes. takes a toll on your effectiveness with clients, patients, and students, even your kids. Reconceive brings help for all the gifted helpers out there who want to make a difference, but first need to feel better, more awake, and more creative. Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield show you a whole new way to think about mental health and the body, offering insight and inspiration to help bring back the vibrancy and joy to your work in the world. If you teach, do therapy, or provide any kind of human service, it's time to reconceive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Have a question for Deborah, Tracy, or their guests? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Now back to Reconceive. Welcome back to Reconceive. We're talking today about putting it all together, doing co-therapy. That's the main thrust of today's conversation. And I do want to say that a lot of a lot of us who are working in solo practice have secret fears of being incompetent and also secret shame about our inability to help certain clients because we're really not able to help everybody. So doing co-therapy is one way to address those secret feelings that contribute to our burnout because we don't have to keep them secret from each other. We know we haven't done co-therapy very much. We've practiced a little bit, but we know that these secret fears of incompetence that therapists have and that we've experienced, you know, they make the job we're trying to do much less fun, much less fun and much less helpful to our clients. Right. Right. So that's another good reason for talking between sessions, talking before the session, talking after the session with the co-therapist. So um, we talked before the break about the process side of this, and we'll be continuing to dip into that as we go along. But in this half of our segment today, I want to um, kind of direct us to the content side. We've over the last 13 weeks and really over the last few years, but in particular doing doing this reconceived series, we've decided on about 21 principles that we believe are true 
that we can bring into this interdisciplinary co-therapy experience. So Tracy and I are going to talk about the what. We've been talking about the how, and now we're going to talk about the what. So number one, moving counteracts freezing. So movement, I have a strong movement background. When I'm doing therapy, I'm always moving. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do sit down and take notes, but I love that about the way I work. Mm -hmm. I love that I don't sit in a chair. Yeah. Yeah. And you've you've talked about how you try not to fidget. I'm like, (laughs) that sounds really challenging. I caught myself (laughs) yesterday literally sitting on my hand. (laughs) (laughs) Trying not to fidget. Yeah. Yeah. So we want to add more movement into our practice, you know, literally moving. And, uh, you know, Dr. Porges states that trauma treatment is clearly going more body oriented. Mm -hmm. So we are moving more uh, moving toward an understanding of trauma as an adaptive reaction. In, yeah, in the body, that the body moves in response and needs to move in a deliberate way as we're recovering from trauma. Right. And as Anat Banyol says, movement is the main information that our brains process. Yeah. So it's always easier to feel differences while you're moving. Whoa, movement is the main information our brain processes? Yes. Is that what you said? Because without movement, life would be inconceivable. Wow. So after every correction I do, I ask the client to stand up and move around and notice you know, Deborah's been teaching me a little bit about hypnosis. And so now I'm saying you may notice <laughs> that you feel different now after we did that correction. Yeah. But it's always easier for them to feel those differences while they're moving. Right, right. That principle alone has revolutionized what I do individually. Um. I was going to get a mini trampoline, which I may still do to put in the corner over there to have people jump on um, if they don't feel too silly, jumping up and down on a mini tramp to, to sort of illustrate that, that movement causes us to notice more of what's going on in our bodies and noticing what's going on in our bodies is like the beginning of learning who we are. Yes, and Moshe Feldenkrais says movement is the best form of self-improvement because it contains feeling, that's emotion sensing, your sensory receptor system, the information gathering system, thinking, and movement, actual physical movement. Right. That was number two, so thank you. Hey. All right, movement with attention. So number three, writing counteracts muteness. And also dissociation. So when we talked to Dr. Etta Madden, we learned a lot about how, how it does that, how writing our thoughts 
actually causes our thoughts to become more real to us so that we can learn more about what we think and feel. Yes. What was the name of that book? Uh, Opening Up by Writing It Down. Opening Up by Writing It Down. I loved that book. James Pennebaker. Mm -hmm. And I found that writing another huge benefit is those secretive feelings. If you're at a point where you feel you can't express them to another person, writing them down can be an important first step Mm -hmm. to muting the impact that those kind of secretive ideas or problems are having on you. Right. Really good point. So I should say that each of these principles that we're talking about, we are planning to infuse into the co-therapy work. And and most directly, we're starting a men's group soon. um, And we'll be bringing movement and writing into those group sessions. So, yes, we we think we'll probably start every session with a movement lesson to bring people home to their bodies, but to also upgrade their brains at the very beginning of the session. Which we might sing too. That's a that's a point number four here. Singing activates the ventral vagus. Yes, and <laughs> and the there there's something I want to mention because. There are a lot of vagal tone exercises out there. So singing can improve vagal tone, mm-hmm. but there are always potential drawbacks to anything that is designed in general to make you feel better. Mm-hmm. So singing makes you, if singing makes you feel better, great. But if it doesn't, try something else because mm-hmm. you may be revving up a a dysfunction in cranial nerve 10 or cranial nerve 9 by using your vocal cords Mm -hmm. in that manner. See, these are the things that I would have no idea about if I were not working with you. So you have to always notice what you feel after you try something. And this goes back to Jeremy, the... um, episode about running a marathon, which wasn't really about running a marathon. He said he tried a lot of things. The things that didn't work didn't make it into the book. Right. So try it, but then also be aware of, did it make you feel better? Right. Or did it not make you feel better? Mm -hmm. If it didn't, try something else. I have literally used singing in therapy sessions before, singing singing lullabies. That's wonderful. Yeah. 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 So it can work. Absolutely. Um, similarly, number five, art recruits the ventral striatum. So there is research to suggest that when we engage in either uh, making art or simply viewing, consuming art, if you will, um, there is a part of the brain that is activated. And that part of the brain, the ventral striatum, involves organizing other parts so that they function together in in a smoother way and a more together way. Um, so it's a coordinator and it yields a sense of um, being organized and a feeling of well-being. Kind of cool. So we will be including art methods too. Yes. And I love the thing about art that I love. It's It seems to me like it's the opposite of automaticity. (laughs) It is. Because you're 
involved in this creative process. And remember, the social engagement system is bi-directional. Yeah. So if you sing, your brain is saying, oh, they're singing. They must be happy. Like I said, there can be drawbacks. But when you're being creative, Uh your brain is thinking, oh, they're being creative. They must be safe. Ooh, I wonder if that's why I relax so deeply at the flea market. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So number six, love counteracts despair and appreciation counteracts guilt. So just noticing who you love and just noticing things you appreciate about them can counteract feelings of despair and feelings of guilt. And when we were earthing before this podcast, we were, Deborah had done this kind of uh, pantomime about a parent and a child. So when the, the parent and the child have a very secure relationship, the child can explore mm-hmm. and then come back to their safe home base. Mm-hmm. This is the process that Anat Banyal describes as inventing yourself so love is what allows us the freedom and safety to invent ourselves Uh she says we are designed to be invented that is so cool and love is what allows us to do that yes wow so we will be putting a lot of attention on this idea of love. We're not going to shy away from using the L word. So um, presence calms. This is number seven. And I will go right into number eight. Focus allows presence. And then number nine, focus allows flow. So what do we mean by all of that? If, If we become present in our bodies we are more apt to be calm. We are apt to find presence in this moment right here, which is really all we have. Until we find this moment, it's hard to know who we are. Right. And when I read you, when I was reading about EMDR, that was one of the most captivating things about it because it talks about how people bring the past into the present. Mm-hmm. And then Anat Banyel talks a lot about how it's difficult for people to be here and now. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that's another beautiful thing about movement. Yeah. If you're paying attention to what it feels like to move, you have to be present. Right, right. So that is number 10. Movement with attention creates learning. That's how to turn the switch on. Yes. So then awareness of body creates presence. Feels like we're going in a circle, but bear with us. Awareness of the body creates presence. So so if we just take a moment to become aware of even the sensations that seem irrelevant, we become more present both for ourselves and for our clients. There's more of me here. Right. And that's a big goal is to create this bigger, more complete self-image. 
And I thought it was funny when we interviewed um, Aaron Owens, who is an Anat Banyo method uh, practitioner. Her business is called Move Your Brain. And she was talking about most people are a floating face with ears. <laughs> right. And that's true. I mean, most people have very little awareness of their physical body. <laughs> I used to say that about myself, um, that I was just a head <laughs> with nothing below the neck. And I, thankfully, I don't feel that way anymore. But um, number 12, I love this one. We can learn to love differently and our attachment styles can change. Did you know that? Most people don't know that. Well, if, it, if you didn't know it, then uh, it, it should sound very hopeful to you. Yeah, I think Michael Merzenich was the first person that we were reading who was suggesting that our attachment styles can change because our brains are plastic. Yes, and Moshe Feldenkrais talks about how if you change how you move, you change how you think and you change how you feel. Mm-hmm. Because if you change how you move, then the changes are represented or actually are occurring within your brain, most commonly as uh, new synaptic pathways. Right. So if you have a new brain, you think differently and you feel differently. And if you think you're stuck in one attachment style, like if you say something about yourself, like, I always find the same guy and I have... I've had three of the same marriages, (laughs) then think about how your brain can change and thus your attachment style can change. You can have a different one now. Um, So yeah, that was number 13. Our brains can change and actually they do constantly, whether we're aware of it or not. And you said a couple of days ago, we're either getting downgraded or we're getting upgraded. Right. So every activity you do can potentially upgrade your brain if you know what to do while you're doing it. But a huge problem is, we've talked about this before, people reach a certain point of competency in their life where they can make a living without really growing as an individual. Mm-hmm. So you get to a point where you're not really learning you're not improving or increasing your self-image. You're a cyborg. And you're a cyborg. And Michael Mersnick, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, if if nothing you do in life matters to you, your brain just slowly dies. It's very sad. But I know a lot of people who are sort of in that. The majority, I believe. Okay. That's why we feel like we're surrounded by zombies when we're out in traffic. Right. And that's also why we think what we're doing with reconceived therapy is revolutionary. I think so. So number 14, simplicity is where the answers lie. You taught me this. My guess is this is part of my studying Anat Bunyel's work and Moshe Feldenkrais' work. Anat says fast is only for what you already know. So if if you want your brain to learn something new, you have to start from where you are. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to start from what you already know. You have to slow down. You have to pay attention to what you're doing. 
And you have to take these small steps, which is this the idea of simplicity uh-huh. is just learning a little bit more than you already know right now. You know, what comes to mind here is my co-therapy work with Dr. Craig Kanan, who I hope is listening right now. Hi, Craig. Um, he is brilliant in a particular way. And he works mainly with children and he does trauma work with them. He does a lot of EMDR with children. He focuses on a very simple piece of the puzzle. He doesn't look at the whole picture and try to solve the whole picture at once. For instance, he pays attention to just the smile and he helps children with just developing a smile, just that much. And so he's watching them and counting the smiles that he gets. And he can judge the success of a session by how many smiles the child makes. That's brilliant. And it feeds right into this bi-directional social engagement system. People smile when they're sad, and it sends a signal to the brain that they're feeling better. And I'm, every time I smile, the signal to my brain is, oh, they're feeling, I am feeling better. So it's really a brilliant way to create a biological state shift. Wow. Yeah. So then um, number 15, if we're going to help others open their cans of worms, we need to get good at opening our own. Right. I think therapists who, you know, never address their own issues are probably not the best therapist. Agreed. Yeah. And Deborah and I have talked about this. We we think that co-therapy will allow us to be better and better at, at self-evaluation, self-reflection, looking at the parts of us that can be difficult to look at mm-hmm. will feel safer as a team. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we just had an experience with this sort of, I had a a little crisis last week. Um, And in sharing that with you uh, and talking about the ways in which it might affect the therapy that I do and and that we do, that was very empowering. It was it was my can of it was the most worms in any can that I have. (laughs) The biggest, (laughs) gnarliest. scariest looking worms. Um, But I'm happy that that can came open now because I think I have a a deeper sense of what I tend to avoid when working with clients. Yeah. And, you know, that just illustrates how therapeutic this will be for us, the therapist. So I'm noticing that we're, we're coming close to the end of our episode, and we may not get through all of these principles today. We may need to revisit um, this list in January, which, which we can do. Um, so just real quickly, I'm going to skip um, the next couple, and I'm going to talk about placebo effect. Can we just say a little bit about the placebo before we come to the end today? Well, you know, my experience when people talk about placebo effect, they're talking about it in a negative sense. And Deborah the other day described placebo. 
She said, maybe placebo is the beginning of imagination and change. I did say that. And That's you know, good. That's really good. <laughs> all of the, the radical remission stories I've read about include this idea of placebo effect. Mm-hmm. So, and Einstein said, imagination is everything. I think placebo is a great thing. I think that we can, if we're in a state of health, growth, and restoration, we can create this positive, hopeful placebo effect in our clients beyond the benefit of the work, you know, just specifically. Right. Sometimes change happens through the indirect channel, and it's more powerful than change that can happen through a direct channel. And that's how hypnosis works. So placebo may actually be not a sugar pill that is meant to trick someone into thinking they're changing. Placebo can actually be the beginning of real change. Yes, and real healing. Right. So so I wanted to mention that I'm, I'm sure we'll talk more about placebo as we go along because um, a number of, of people that I've talked to believe that psychotherapy just creates placebo or that, you know, maybe what you do, I think you've been accused of creating placebo. Yes. Yeah. Because anytime people don't understand what the therapist is doing, Mm -hmm. they can negate it by saying it's placebo effect, but placebo effect may be the most healing uh, uh, mechanism within us. It may be. Yeah. We need to give it a different name perhaps. So um, the, the, the final element that I want to mention here before we close is that change is the only constant. We can count on change because change is constant. Everything is in flux all the time. We're never stuck. And I think that's what maybe reconceived therapy is all about. Change is constant. And we can capture that and we can label it and notice it and make more of it. Right. We were timid about it at first, but here at episode 13, we are all in. <laughs> we're all in. <laughs> it's impossible to turn around and go back. Right. We've seen we've seen a way for this process to be healing for everyone involved, to be hopeful for everyone involved. And uh we hope it's the wave of the future. Why would anybody want to do this work alone? So we hope you'll join us in January when we're back. Write to us at reconceivetherapy at gmail.com. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Reconceive. We hope you've learned something today you can use to reconnect and feel better. Tune in next week for more on transforming practice. Until then, have a great week.